All right, well, good morning, church. Welcome to College Church this morning. We're glad you're here. We're grateful that you're having an opportunity to connect with some other people around you. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Tyson. I'm one of the pastors on the team here, and we're, I'm grateful that you're joining us this morning. Uh, in Greek mythology, one of the great stories is the story of the Trojan War. It's a war that raged on between the city of Troy and the Greek forces. Paris of Troy, one of the princes, took Helen to be his wife. The only problem is Helen was already married to King Menelaus, who was the king of Sparta at the time. And so Menelaus wasn't a big fan of that. And so he gathered all of the Greek kings and forces together to wage war against the city of Troy. And if you want to dig in to this story a little bit more, you can dust off your copy of Homer's Iliad. Or you can watch the 2004 movie Troy starring a young Brad Pitt. The choice is yours. I'm just saying, early 2000s Brad Pitt was a hunk, okay? <laughs> the short summary of the story goes like this. There's been this war against a city for over a decade. The Greek forces are trying to get into the city of Troy, and they can't break through the outer defenses of this city. They keep trying and trying, and nothing seems to be working. And so Odysseus, the leader of the Greek forces, comes up with an ingenious plan of how they're going to defeat the city of Troy. Over the course of three days, they build a wooden horse, and they leave it outside the city, hop in their boats, and then make it look like they have completely retreated. The city of Troy thinks that they've done an amazing job. They held strong for over a decade, and they think that this horse is an offering of peace. And so they bring it into their city, welcoming it in. The only problem is when they went to sleep that night, 30 Greek warriors came out of the inside of that horse, opened up the front gates to the city of Troy, and allowed all the other Greek warriors to come back from their boats, causing the city of Troy to fall and the war to end. This is where we get the term Trojan horse from. A Trojan horse is something that looks fine, even good from the outside, but the appearance is deceiving, and something within it can be destructive and can ultimately, like this story shows, lead to our downfall. And this picture of a Trojan horse leads us to the third church that we'll look at in our series, not as it seems, the Church of Pergamum. If you haven't been with us over the first few weeks of this series, we are in a series uh, that is looking at the book of Revelation. It's called Not As It Seems. And as we approach the book of Revelation, every week we'll come back to these three reminders. First and foremost, Revelation is about Jesus. That's the primary focus of this book. He is the one that the book is about. He is the one giving the revelation to John on the island of Patmos. The second thing is that this is about our discipleship. It's not just a book about the end of time. It's not just a book about what's going to happen in a future date. This is about our discipleship and following of Jesus right here, right now in 2022. And finally, it is understood best within the whole scope of Scripture. It's not meant to be taken on its own where you're trying to predict what's going to happen. It's meant to be understood within the whole picture of what the rest of the Bible says. And with these things in mind, when we get nervous, when we get concerned, when we approach Revelation, when we come across things that we don't understand, we don't have to be fearful because Jesus wants to speak to us. It's all about him it is all about our discipleship, and it's aligned with the rest of Scripture. And if, over the last two weeks specifically, we have looked at 
the letters to the seven churches. We started off a couple weeks ago with Pastor Sean looking at the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus, everything looked great on the outside, but what was going on inside the church, Jesus says, I see that your heart has drifted. You have lost your first love for me. Last week, we looked at Smyrna, and we saw that this church was under incredible pressure from the outside, from political forces and religious forces and spiritual forces that were trying to cause people to walk away from their faith, and they were persecuted. And so I left us with this super cheesy line, when others smear your name, remember Smyrna. Super cheesy, I know, admittedly, still cheesy a week later. But the, the, the focus is, Smyrna held strong in the face of external pressure, and Jesus says because of that, there was a crown of life waiting for them. And the same is true for us when we are under pressure, when we hold strong. Jesus has a promise of a crown of life waiting for us in the face of pressure. And today we get to the church of Pergamum, and here's what Jesus says to this church. If you have your Bibles with you, it's in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 12. If you don't, it'll be on the screens uh, behind me here. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you were holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Would you pray with me as we've read God's word today? Father, thank you for these words to this church in the first century in Pergamum. Jesus, I thank you that you love this church and you love our church today. And so today, as we unpack these words to that first century church, I pray you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you want to speak to Callwood Church today, 2,000 years later. Open up our eyes to see what you want us to see and our ears to hear what you want us to hear. Take the rest of our time together this morning as we look at scripture and help us to look like you, Jesus, more as we leave this place today. Help it to be pointing towards who you are and who you want us to be, Lord. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. Now, a little bit of background about the city of Pergamum, or some of your Bibles might have it Pergamos, uh, but we're going to use the word Pergamum today as we talk about it. The first thing is that it is the Roman capital of the province of Asia, and it's a city that's known about being cultured and about being all about education. It had one of the great libraries of the ancient world with over 2,000 parchment scrolls, 200,000 parchment scrolls in it. This city was well-educated and was enamored with words and ideas. It was also an extremely religious city. Being the capital of Rome in Asia, it had a temple to the emperor at the time where you would go into the temple, just like we talked about last week, offer a pinch of incense, and you would say, Caesar is Lord. And then you would do that once a year, being a part of the Roman citizen in that city. But they didn't just worship the emperor, they worshiped many Greek and Roman gods as well. 
On the, on, the, on the hills nearby of the city, there were temples to other Greek and Roman gods, and there were two that were specifically prominent in the worship in the life of Pergamum. First, there was a deity known as Asclepius, who was pre- represented by a serpent. Asclepius was the god of healing and knowledge. And there was a medical school at his temple in Pergamum, and because of this, people would flock from all over the Roman Empire to come to this temple for relief. Here's how William Barclay puts it. Sufferers were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple, there were tame snakes. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of these tame and harmless snakes as it glided over the ground on which he lay. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of the God himself, and the touch was held to bring health and healing. Anybody like gross? Okay. But people came from all over the Roman Empire to be to experience a touch from a serpent. The second god that was worshipped prominently in Pergamum was Zeus, or sometimes Zeus the Savior. Above this city, there was a 40-foot altar and temple that that was a a temple to Zeus. And it was actually one of the the, uh, wonders of the ancient world. The temple was built on an 800-foot ledge above the street level. And so the temple cast a shadow, and everyone lived in, in the shadow of this temple in Pergamum. Scholars believe that it's because of these reasons that Jesus refers to this place as Satan's throne. There is a God who is worshipped there that is represented by a serpent, which in Scripture is one of the images or pictures used to describe Satan. And there's this throne that is cast over the whole city. And because of these things, everything according to Jesus was under Satan's throne in Pergamum. And yet here's the amazing thing about this church. They held strong even though they were in a city that was described as being Satan's throne. They held their ground against all these outside forces, even to the point of giving their lives. And Jesus specifically notes a person by name, Antipas, who had died under the pressures outside of the church. Even all this outside pressure on their faith, Jesus says, I see you. I see that you have not turned your back. I see that you have not walked away from your faith. You have held strong in the face of all of these things. You've held strong while under attack. And then Jesus continues his thought. But I have a few things against you. That's an unfortunate turn, isn't it? The church in Pergamum has held strong against all these outside forces. They thought that they were doing great in the face of all of this pressure that they were feeling. They've held on for a long time and they think that they're doing great. Yet like the city of Troy, without realizing it, they have allowed things to come in like a Trojan horse into their community to come right through the front gates of their church community, thinking they were not a big deal, and yet they had the power to undo everything from the inside. While they were so focused on resisting outside forces, they had become indifferent to the influences from within. And what were these influences? Well, Jesus gives us two schools of teaching that were leading people astray. There was the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, these two groups were probably teaching similar, if not the same things, because Nicolaitans is a Greek word, and Balaam is a Hebrew word that basically mean the same thing. They're both made up of two words. The first part of the word is conqueror or lord, and the second part of the word is people. And so they were teaching ideas that, with the goal of conquering the people, conquering their minds, conquering their thinking. And what were they trying to conquer their thinking with? 
Well, we get a picture from Balaam being referenced. Balaam, if you don't know his story, is an Old Testament prophet who's wicked and corrupt and greedy. And you find his story in Numbers chapter 22 to 25. Balak, the king of the Moabites, sees that Israel is getting powerful, sees that they have God on their side. And so he calls on Balaam the prophet and says, please curse these Israelite people. We can't allow them to continue on. They're going to take us out, the Moabites, and we need you to put a curse on these people. And so Balaam comes, he's offered money, offered, offered fame, offered all sorts of things by Balak to put a curse on Israel. The only problem is, even though he's not a good dude, he hears from God. And God says to him, don't put a curse on those people. It's a wild story. If you want to keep reading, there's a talking donkey in it. I won't spoil it for you. What he says, you can keep going there. But three times, Balaam comes and he's like, I want to curse the Israelites. And three times, God says, I'm not going to allow you to curse the Israelites. And Balak is furious. He's angry. Why will you not do this one thing that I'm asking you to do? And so they get to this kind of stalemate point where Balaam can't curse the Israelites and Balak wants to defeat the Israelites. And since Balaam can't curse them, he encourages Balak to try a different approach. His encouragement is, send Moabite women to the Israelite men to seduce them. And in the process, these Israelite men will leave their marriages, they will commit adultery, they'll walk away from their relationships, and as a result of that, they might even start worshiping Moabite gods and idols. And if you pick it up in Numbers chapter 25, this is exactly what has happened. The Israelites start committing adultery, start being unfaithful, and start sleeping with Moabite women, and the women convince them to offer sacrifices to their gods. Though Balaam couldn't curse the Israelites, he found a different way to try to get them off course and on their way to walking away from Yahweh and worshiping idols and other gods through sexual immorality. Now back to our Revelation text today, we see that among other things, Jesus makes it clear that what these two groups of people were teaching was that it was okay for Christians to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to have sexual relations outside the bonds of marriage. These same snares that were used hundreds of years earlier on the Israelites are being used again on the church in Pergamum. And these two issues, eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality, were such a big deal that they were a part of the first ecumenical council, the first gathering of all church leaders together to talk about how are we going to deal with these issues in Acts chapter 15. The council had to decide how are they going to respond to these two things, eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality that was around them in their culture. And here's how they concluded what they should do in Acts 15, 28, and 29. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Yet the Balaamite and Nicolaitan crews were teaching the exact opposite of this. Why is it such a big deal to Jesus that they're teaching the opposite of this? Why does he get so worked up about it that he says, I'm going to come with a two-edged sword and cut that away if it doesn't stop? The reason why Jesus is so intolerant of these ideas is because they misunderstand the nature of reality, the nature of our bodies, of God, and the world that we live in. First, these teachings misunderstand reality in regards to our bodies. Their argument about sexual immorality is probably pretty similar to most of the arguments that are here today. Sex is just sex. 
What's the big deal? Why are you being such a prude about it? Why are you being so restrictive? We're not made to just have sex with one person. Why are you being so restrictive in the way that you're viewing it? And because it had creeped into the church, it probably even had some religious language around it. God has set us free, so let us be free in our sexuality. Why are you being so restrictive? The reason why this is such a big deal is because it misunderstands our bodies. This is the way Daryl Johnson puts it. This understanding of our body misunderstands the true nature of the body. The word the New Testament uses for body is soma. This soma is not only the material form, but it's also the imperishable form, imperishable form of the personality. The soma is the real self, the whole person. We are all a soma individually, a whole and integrated person, both emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Our physical bodies are not insignificant. I do not have a body. I am a body. This is the way that Lewis Smedes puts it. This is why what you do with your body is what you do with yourself. What I do to my body, I do to me. My body is my outer self and my soul is my inner self, but both are the same self. Far more than just biology is involved in sex. The act involves the soma, the very real essence of who we are, and it involves fusing one soma to another soma, which is why it matters. We are not just trying to be restrictive in the Christian worldview. We are saying we have to have a holistic understanding of what it means to be a human being. And we are not just bodies. We are a soma. They misunderstood the nature of our bodies. The second thing they misunderstood is the nature of reality regarding spiritual forces. Eating a meal in that day carried with it a great deal more weight than it does in our day and age. This is the way one commentator put it. For a Jew to eat and drink at someone's table created a bond of mutual loyalty and could be the culminating token of a covenant. And the Gentiles held a similar view. When a meal was held in honor of a God, it was believed that the God was a guest at that meal. To eat a meal that was in honor of an idol or in honor of a God, there was more than just eating that meal going on in that moment. You might be thinking, aren't idols just a piece of wood or a piece of stone? What is the big deal? And you're right, it is just a piece of wood or stone, but the point is that there is more going on at the banquet of an idol than we see. Something spiritual is happening in that moment. Here's the way Daryl Johnson puts it again. We are physical creatures living in a physical universe, but we are also spiritual creatures living in a spiritual universe. And in this spiritual universe, there is a battle going on. Every inch is a battlefield. There is no neutral territory. This is why Jesus is so intolerant of the ideas of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitan crew, because ideas are not neutral. These ideas were informing the church's thinking, which was informing their living. There was a battle going on for their minds. And the same is true of us today, church. In 2022, there's a battle going on for our minds as well. This is why Jesus describes himself as coming with a two-edged sword, pointing with, with the word coming out of his mouth to cut away these false ideas, because false ideas lead to enslavement. 
Here's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. There's a battle going on for our minds every day. What we think about the world, what we think about God, what we think about ourselves really matters. And this is why Jesus points us back to his word, why he comes as the word of God with a two-edged sword to cut away false ideas that are not aligned with reality because he desires for us to live life aligned with reality, life to the full, worshiping God as he truly is, seeing ourselves as we truly are, and seeing the world around us as it truly is. God wants us to live life to the full, and that's why he cares about the false ideas about God, about ourselves, and about the world that we live in. Jesus is fighting for our minds and calling the church in Pergamum and Colwood Church today to examine what is inside, to see where we might be led astray. And as I was reflecting on these ideas in this passage of Scripture, I was reminded of a situation from my life from about three years ago. Every year at the church, we put on multiple uh, Christmas Eve services. So typically on a, on a Christmas Eve day, we'll have two or three services. And the people who are serving on our team that day, we want to try and bless them and, and say thank you for your service. And so we bring in food for the crew who's going to be there for the full day serving at our Christmas Eve gatherings. And three years ago, the spread was awesome. It was delicious. We had mini sandwiches coming in. We had all sorts of desserts and deliciousness. We had sushi coming in. It was amazing. And we ate all this food, and I was back there between services just pounding back food. It was delicious. And everything was great, and we went through the rest of the day and then got to the dinner table. And our tradition in our family is on, on Christmas Eve night, we order in Chinese food, and we have it at the dinner table. And I was sitting down, looking forward to this Chinese food meal when I sit at the table, and out of nowhere, I sense something is not right inside of me. I'll spare you the details, but over the next 12 hours, I probably threw up about one time an hour for the whole rest of that night. What a Christmas present, hey? I was so sick, I was so food poisoned, and I found out later that I was not the only one. So many people on our team had a real Christmas morning surprise that day. And we traced it back to some bad sushi that we had all eaten. Needless to say, I did not eat sushi for a very long time after that. I tell that story to just say this simple thing. I ate that sushi thinking it wasn't a big deal. And in fact, it wasn't a big deal for a large portion of my day. I went on throughout the whole rest of that day, fine until later that evening, I finally felt the effects of the bad sushi that I've eaten. Church, this is a picture sometimes of the ideas that we take in. Sometimes we take in ideas without even thinking about the consequences, without thinking it's a big deal. The ideas might even seem delicious or pleasing to us at the moment, and we take them in without filtering them, without thinking about them, only for them to later to poison our souls. We take in ideas that have an effect on us. And so here's the question that I want us to ask this morning as we're reflecting on the church in Pergamum. Where have you allowed bad sushi into your thinking? Where have you allowed ideas in without thinking about how they are changing your heart and your mind? When you think about the content that you consume, whether it's on social media or it's on 
the movies you watch, the TV you watch. I'm not saying don't do those things, but are you critical of the content that you're consuming and are you aware of how it's shaping and forming you as a person? The way David Kinnaman puts it is soul's disciple. You are being discipled towards something every time you watch a movie, every time you watch a social media post, and are you aware of what you are being discipled to? And is it aligned with Jesus and his way? Through this message to the Church of Pergamum, God lovingly invites us to pause and reflect on the question, what am I allowing to shape my thinking and is it leading me away from Jesus and his way? Can I get really real with you this morning, church, for a minute? Is that okay? Quiet room this morning, okay. One of the areas that I think this is most prevalent is when it comes to our politics, church. We can be so focused on the other side of the political aisle, so focused on people that we disagree with, thinking that they are the problem, that we end up like the city of Troy, so focused on the outside forces without critically examining what we are allowing inside of our lives. We're taking in bad sushi when it comes to our politics sometimes, church. People on the right-hand side of the aisle are so focused on the left that they're saying uncritically, I'm going to take in more content on the right and more content on the right, whether it aligns with Jesus or not. And vice versa, people on the left-hand side of the aisle, you're allowing Trojan horses into your life by just agreeing and consuming content without being critical of whether it aligns with Jesus or not. And church, we have to come back to this place where we stop allowing our political views to be the first filter and Jesus to be the second filter. We have to allow our faith to filter our politics first and foremost. Are you with me, church? We can't allow our politics to be the first voice because that's when we go so far off the rails. It's when we become focused on power instead of loving and serving people. It's when we become focused on hating our enemies and those that we disagree with instead of loving them and praying for those who persecute us or even just disagree with us. Church, we cannot just take in content without realizing what it is doing to our hearts, our minds, and our souls. We have to come back to Jesus in his way and ask the question, what am I allowing to shape my thinking? And is it leading me to be more like Jesus and allowing the fruit of the Spirit to be more prevalent in my life? Or is it causing me to hate or demonize those that I disagree with? To hate people who disagree with me about how we should handle the pandemic that we're still a little bit in. What is shaping our thinking and is it allowing us to be more like Jesus and more full of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it shaping us to be more like something else? And as you've been listening and reflecting this morning on God's word to the church in Pergamum, you might acknowledge that there's some ideas that you've allowed in that are not making you a more loving, more caring, more Jesus-aligned person. And if that's you, Jesus' invitation to you today and his invitation to the church of Pergamum is repent. Now, the biblical idea of repentance is turning away from one thing and turning towards something else. Jesus is saying to all of us, it's not too late. You've not gone too far that direction. You can turn today towards Jesus. And I love this about God's grace for us. He doesn't just point out where we are wrong, but he gives us something that we can do. We can turn towards him and turn away from false ideas so that we can walk in greater wholeness and greater freedom. That is God's heart for us. And if we turn away from false ideas and back to Jesus, he promises something to us. He promises two things in this passage. First, we will receive hidden manna. 
Now, this, this picture of manna in Scripture is how God provided food for the Israelite people. And Jesus in the New Testament takes that picture and says, I am the bread of life that satisfies. Jesus is saying you're looking for satisfaction. You're looking for ideas that will satisfy you, a worldview that will help make sense of things. I am what you need. I am the food that satisfies. The second thing that he promises them is a white stone with their names written on it. White stone in that time period meant a whole bunch of different things. First, it was a ticket to a banquet. It was a sign of being forgiven. It was a sign of friendship. And so this white stone that is given to these people is saying, hey, if you hold strong, if you turn away from these false ideas that have been enslaving you, guess what? You're invited to the great banquet to be with the king. You are his friend. You have been forgiven. And he wants you to have that white stone with your name written on it today. Church, there is a battle going on for our minds right here, right now. And what we allow into our minds really does matter. It shapes who we are. And Jesus is contending for our minds because he wants us to see and know that he is the one that can truly satisfy. He wants us to see and know that he is the one who can forgive us and offer friendship and eternity. Jesus wants your mind. He doesn't just want your heart. He is contending for your mind as well today, church. And we have to be critical of the things that we take in to see if they are aligned with him and his way. Would you pray with me, church, this morning? Jesus, I'll be honest, this is a hard, uh, hard message to process just personally and for, for our church community. It's a, it's a message that we don't see our own blind spots. I don't see the things that I take in and consume that sometimes are, are poisoning me. And so today, God, I pray that as we reflect on this message, as we reflect on what are we taking in and what are we consuming, that you would make it clear to us, Holy Spirit, the things that we need to give up, that we need to be more critical of, the things that we need to stop just allowing into our hearts and minds that are shaping us to be people who are not reflecting you to this world, people of love, people with hope in our speech, people filled with grace and truth. God, open up our minds to see where we may be in error. And none of us like feeling like we've been wrong. And so God, would I just pray that you would give us the humility to acknowledge where we've been wrong, to not be so proud that we can't acknowledge where we've had errors in our thinking. And Lord, where the enemy wants to speak words of shame to people, saying, how could you be so stupid for believing that? I just pray against that right now, Lord, that no shame would land, no condemnation would land in our hearts, but that, Lord, that conviction that you bring would lead us to repentance and to stepping more towards you and life to the full, not lead us to being stuck in shame. And so, Jesus, today, thank you for your word to the church in Pergamum. Thank you that that church held strong against external pressures and that they needed this word so that it could be deposited in our church today as well, 2,000 years later. So God, help us to be people who filter what we take in and see if it aligns with you and your way, Jesus. In your name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church, for being with us today. Uh, If you are brand new this morning or if you would love prayer,
prayer at all, uh, Pastor Josh is in our welcome center. He'd love to meet you. Uh, you can head on over there just to say hi to him. Or if you need a word of prayer this morning, he's there for you as well. Um, if you're, you're new to faith or you're new to Christianity and you're wondering what this is all about, I encourage you to text the word LIFE to 250-478-7113. And that'll just get you in touch with one of our pastoral team who'd love to walk with you and journey with you when it comes to, to faith. And so thanks, church, for being with us today. I love you and have a wonderful rest of your long weekend. Thanks, just.